Welcome to The Drill Down, the business stories behind stocks on the move. I'm Corey Johnson. Today is Tuesday, May 18. Well, just ahead, an electric car and truck maker that still doesn't seem to have a plan to make electric cars and trucks. Plus, Walmart says the key to fixing sagging profits is lower prices. And Bitcoin scammers impersonating Elon Musk. But first, it's sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by Era, a one-stop equity platform where you can seamlessly connect to any earnings call and surface actionable insights automatically. Era's AI-powered tools will allow you to work faster and smarter. That's Era, A-E-I-R-A dot com. And you can listen to The Drill Down on any of your favorite podcast platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeart, and TuneIn. Just hit that subscribe button and follow us. Catch every show. And remember to join the drill down on Twitter and Instagram at drilldownpod. Connect with us on our website, bizpod.net, and let us know what companies you want us to talk about. All right, I'm Corey Johnson. Welcome back to the drill down, the business stories behind stocks on the move. Isaac Webster joins me, our producer extraordinaire. Isaac, what are the top three stories in the world of business today? Hey, Corey, here are the top three business stories today. First up, JP Morgan is placing two of the contenders aiming to succeed CEO Jamie Dimon in charge of its consumer banking operation. Marianne Lake and Jennifer Pipesack will take the reins of the unit from the retiring Gordon Smith. Now, this move solidifies Lake and Pipesack as front runners to lead J.P. Morgan, the biggest bank in the U.S. How about that? Two women at the top of this bank. Let's yeah. add to that Kristen Lemkow, who is also the head of the private bank. A nice interview with her in Barron's a few weeks ago. Uh, so those three women leading you know, one of the largest banks and largest employers in America. That's right. Now, second story we have today, Google planning to build a commercial-grade quantum computer by 2029. Now, of course, many companies are racing to build a business around this technology, but Google has now set a marker out 2029 for a com commercial-grade quantum computer. Um, it is the holy grail of computing right now, this notion of quantum computing, and there are sort of no... Uh, uh, there's lots of attempts to do this at, at, at small scale. The notion that they think they can do that by any date on any calendar is amazing. Well, and, the, you know, we know we've been covering this space for, well, over a decade, and they've been at this for over many, many years. So we'll see how this pans out. But it, it will be quantum technology. I mean, that it will change everything. Yeah, if they can do it. I mean, we'll see. There, uh, Ion Q is the first publicly traded sort of pure uh, quantum computing company. Uh, we talked about it uh, just a couple weeks ago when we talked to Niccolo Damasi and talking about the spec that DMY technology did with Ion Q. That's right. Now, the third story we have today, the U.S. Federal Trade Commission says that Elon Musk impersonators, imposters, scammed $2 million in cryptocurrency. The scam took place from October 2020 to March 2021. Now, in total, nearly 7,000 investors lost $80 million in assorted cryptocurrency scams from that period, October to March. Now, that's all according to the FTC. The medium amount that people lost was around $1,900. And the spate of these fraud cases, a nearly 1,000% increase compared with the same period from the previous year. So uh, watch out for those Elon Musk impersonators. I really feel compelled to do my impersonation of Elon Musk right now. So here we go. No, I'm not oh, going to do that. Yeah, I really no wish you wouldn't. I've been warned by my teenagers. No impersonations, Dad. <laughs> they are they are wise. Corey, what stocks are you drilling down on today? 
Let's start with a small one. Company is called Walmart. Walmart. I think I've heard of it. Walmart shares, they rose over 2% today and they've gained 11% in a year. What's going on with Walmart today? Yeah, not a good year for Walmart stock. Their first quarter report, I thought it was super interesting this morning, the quarter ending in April. They're in an April quarter. Um, you know, 2.2 million employees work at Walmart, right? It's the largest employer in the country by any measure. So I think that alone uh, means that anything they do is important to a lot of people. 2.2 million. Who's the second largest employer? Amazon.com. Ah, there you go. The, the world is changing, yeah. And I said 2.2 million. That's 2.2 million across the world, um, but oh, gotcha. uh, a, a, a more than a million of those in the U.S. Um, in any case, uh, the results were interesting. Comp store sales uh, up, U.S. stores and digital channels up 6% year over year in the quarter that ended in April 30th. Online, huge, as you would expect, 37%. And while that sounds good, it's actually the slowest quarter of online growth since the pandemic began. So we're seeing the beginning of the emergence of a post-pandemic world in these Walmart results. Now, at Walmart, there's basically two worlds, right? There's there's food and non-food. Now, non-food sales across all their channels is up 20%. And the company said that government stimulus checks were a big part of that. Customers went all out on apparel, home improvement, recreation. But food sales were down. Um, you know, if you think about what was happening a year ago, the hoarding that was going on was good business for Walmart when the shelves were cleared out and you couldn't get uh, toilet paper, you couldn't get all kinds of food. Isaac, I don't know if you were trying to buy flour for your sourdough bread project. Oh, I have. I I hoarded like everybody else. I um, was constantly scouring all the all the stores around us um, for bleach, toilet paper. Bread, canned goods. I never did the sourdough bread project, though. Oh, my my daughter's freshman science teacher refused to change the assignment he gives every kid every year to go home and make sourdough bread and watch the bacteria happen in natural air and write about it for science. I wrote him a letter, a note. I'm like, hey, genius. There's no flour in any stores anyway. I can get it. I'll knock over some old lady and take the flour out of her basket. But is <laughs> no, that really what we want no, to encourage? Won't. Yes, I will. For my daughter, I 100% will. But I wrote this teacher and he said, yeah, maybe she can I should not laugh he, at that. He's no longer teaching at that school. Oh, oh God, wow. I'm still mad. Your notes In any case. Very powerful. What I thought was most interesting, uh, listening to Doug McMillan, the CEO of Walmart, talking about uh, what was going on at the company was a lesson that he learned early in his career. He shared that anecdote on the conference call today about how do you increase food sales. Walmart says you roll back prices. Listen to this fascinating anecdote of uh, Walmart CEO Doug McMillan remembering uh, his early days. I'm reminded of a conversation in the early 90s. As, a, as an assistant buyer in food, my supervisor walked into the room with a few of us and said, we're short on our profit number for the month. I need you all to find price reductions that you can put in place quickly, bring them to me by the end of the day. And I thought I misheard him. How do you lower prices and increase profit? And that's the beauty of retail and of mix and these super centers. And now with e-commerce and marketplace and fulfillment services and Walmart Connect, We've got all these levers to be able to find places to go upstream, do things differently than other people are doing it. So to have 30% more rollbacks in place right now in Walmart U.S., for example, positions us really well. So do you get that? Lower prices, it makes people more encouraged to shop, and they buy more stuff total, including stuff with higher margins, 
So you cut some prices on some things, it leads to more sales of other things. And that's kind of the Walmart secret sauce. I, I just thought that was super fascinating. And that, you know, here he's telling the story of himself from 30 years ago and the impression that that moment had on him. Well, you know, those Walmart prices are all, are already super low. So, wow. This might not surprise you. I'm not much of a Walmart shopper. Corey, what is your next drill down? All right, let's take a look at, well, let's, I'm going to do two drill downs, right? We've got two more to go, but they're both uh, amazing SPAC stories, companies that came out of the gate with a quick IPO listing and um, at least in both cases seem to me to not have much of a mature business plan. The first of those, canoe. Canoe. Like? Yes, canoe. Like up a paddle, a river with no paddle, like a canoe. Yeah. <laughs> Some well, canoes do stock. have paddles, by the way. <laughs> oh, right. You're supposed to. Right. They're, well, right. these guys... These guys abandon a couple of plans and maybe without a paddle. But what a, what a story! The stock ticker tells you everything to know, right? The ticker is 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 uh, uh, tells you what go they EV. wanted to go EV. They wanted to uh, position this as an electric vehicle company, um, and uh, it's it's been kind of a disaster since it became public. So canoe shares go EV G O E V shares did rise slightly today, and they've but they've dropped twenty five percent over the last twelve months. That's 25% from the IPO. They're down about 70% from uh, the height of when this thing uh, uh, got all the excitement before they started talking. <laughs> Once they opened their mouths, things got ugly over there. Uh, uh, this company, you know, which is not making any cars, does not have a factory. Uh, they've got some interesting technologies and some plans and some designs and really cool video on their website. And what they came out and said uh, they were going to do is they were eventually going to build cars – electric cars, electric trucks, and a, and a platform for other companies uh, to use their technologies. And that as a way to bridge the gap from now until production, let's remember that Elon Musk has shown us many things. One of them is that it's really, really hard and really expensive to build an auto company from scratch. And Elon Musk says it nearly killed him. So these guys were saying, you know, we're going to go public Trust us, give us your money. Here's our plan. We're going to start producing cars in a few years and trucks in a few years. We're going to create a, a platform for other companies. In the meantime, we've got this partnership with Hyundai, uh, and that's going to help us kind of bridge the gap to have a business that's operating and making some money and start to raise the money to build these factories. Then they did their first conference call in April. The CEO wasn't on the call. The CFO uh, had left. And they announced that there was no deal with Hyundai anymore. Uh, they were going to come up with a new business plan. They weren't going to build factories anymore. They were going to find somebody else to contract out and let them use their factories somehow. It was just a disaster, and the stock collapsed um, uh, when that when they came out with that announcement. It seemed somewhat confused. So now they have their first quarterly conference call. Still no CEO. Now an interim CFO. And uh, – this is uh, the CEO, Tony Aquila, talking about uh, what their plans are, uh, their current plans are with this company. As I mentioned earlier, there has been a lot of attention on SPACs. Oh, there's a little surprise. We recently received a notice from the SEC that they are conducting an investigation of Canoe. They characterize the process as a fact-finding inquiry. Unfortunately, for obvious reasons, we are unable to take any questions regarding this, but we are committed to providing timely updates as appropriate. So 
I've listened to a lot of conference calls in my life. It is rare that you have a company announce that it's being investigated by the SEC, even when it's a, quote, fact-finding uh, uh, inquiry from the SEC. When the Securities Exchange Commission is investigating your company, it's never a good thing. Who I would love to know who is investing in Canoe. Who are, who are the shareholders here? Well, I think that one of the interesting things about the SPACs in general is that um, there aren't a lot of shares that ultimately float when they list these things. Mm. So many shares are tied up by the, the pipe sponsors who so kind of bring into the company uh, a bunch of money to launch the thing. Those shares aren't floating in the public right away. The insiders are forbidden from selling any stock right away. Um, and so uh, you have the financial backers of the shell that the, the operating company goes into are also unable to sell right away. And so what you have is a very limited float with a lot of excitement. One of the things SPACs are allowed to do is talk about uh, the future, to give actual financial projections about the future. And uh, you can't do that when you do an IPO, but you can do that when you do a SPAC. That's legal. And so the result is you have a lot of excitement and hype generated by the company about what they could possibly do at the same time that you have a very limited number of shares out there. But over the course of two, three, six months, those shares start to get unlocked and the insiders have the capacity to sell. The pipe uh, people who brought the money to the deal, they have the ability to sell. And so the ability to sell the stock generates over time after the excitement has been ignited with the fire of a SPAC. Corey, what's your next drill down? Well, as long as we're in SPAC land, let's stay there. Uh, another one. This has got a great name, ready? Desktop Metal. Desktop Metal. Wow. Is this, this is not a band, uh, but this, no. is a three, <laughs> this is a 3D a, printing company. It, uh, DM, Desktop Metal. DM shares fell today, but they are higher by 35% over the last 12 months. Let me drop into that DM. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, keep it clean. Keep it clean. Okay. I'll keep it clean. All right. This yeah. is another 3D printing company. It's not a heavy metal band. It is not uh, like dropping into a DM. But DM, desktop metal, uh, as we talked about, 3D printing, uh, another one. Look, 3D printing is not the future. It's a 25, 30-year-old industry. It's been growing very slowly over that time. But every few years, really about every seven years, to be exact, there's a fever of speculation around these stocks. And we're in the throes of such a 3D printing fever right now. Listen, if we get stranded in space or on the moon or on Mars, isn't it 3D printing technology that's supposed to save us? What are the composites you're going to I do put live in into? Hollywood. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So what material <laughs> are they going to put in all the 3D movies. printer to make stuff? You'll take your leftover yeah. oxygen and print that? <laughs> hey, we've got the, we're, anyway. running, we're running out of air. We don't have any food and we're out of engine for our spaceship. Hurry, Can 3D print something. Let's yeah. print something quick. <laughs> print a rocket oh, ship. Oh my goodness. So listen, maybe that is true. Who knows? But- uh, right, well, look, DM stock right. price would suggest a lot of excitement about this company. What's the story today? Like I today? said, there's a lot of stock, uh, 3D printing stocks that are going up in history. They've gone up and down a lot. Um, maybe this will keep going up. But it's a six-year-old company. Uh -huh. uh, just from public using a SPAC, as I mentioned. Now, I know you hate the business parlance, uh, you know, that I that irritates me, right? So when when they you say You hate the company, it. I don't hate it. You, you have a thing against it. I get upset with the yes. company missed earnings numbers. Mm-hmm. That's never true. It's never been true. Analysts misanalyze. Companies 
do what they're going to do. The analysts set the bar if they set the wrong bar, and they've done that for desktop metals with both of their quarters. They've had two quarters of public company, and the analysts were over-optimistic about desktop metals' ability to call their losses. You mean missed. No, they don't miss. <laughs> they don't miss. The analysts miss. The company doesn't miss. The company is not as good as the analysts think it is, and the analysts are confronted with this in both of the quarters this company has reported. They did a, a, a bunch of acquisitions, it's worth noting. You know, I talked about how companies in a SPAC are allowed to talk about the future and give guidance going forward after the SPAC and IPOs. That is not the case. Well, Desktop Metal, right after their SPAC, did a $300 million acquisition. Today, they announced another acquisition buying a company called uh, Adaptive 3D. They didn't say what it cost, but, you know, they spent $300 million on the last one. They spent something on this new one. But here's the deal. All this growth that they predicted when they did the deal, all this growth that the analysts have misestimized, they've misestimized the profits, not the, gro- the revenue numbers. Well, uh, uh, Desktop Metals came out today, and they did not raise their guidance in spite of doing these acquisitions. They still say they expect $100 million in sales. They said that the losses, the losses that are exceeding the analyst optimism, the losses will continue. So the analysts on the call, they didn't get a lot of questions in, but they sounded a little bit kind of dumbfounded, at least to me. And they asked the CEO, Rick Fullup, they asked him, you know, what's up? You're doing these acquisitions. The guidance is the same. What kind of losses should we expect? Should we expect losses? Every quarter is, is what's – and, and I mean, it's just me, but I thought he sounded super vague when he was asked about the exact steps he was going to take to grow faster. Listen listen to this uh, this uh, snippet from the conference call with all the uhs and the pauses and the vague – at least vague to me – answers from the CEO of Desktop Metal. I would say uh, you know, we, we, we expect to be within the guidance we just gave you. Uh, for for this year, and uh, we expect to, you know, what we're trying to do is accelerate our our timeline that we put out last year when we initially went public, and and try to get get to a billion dollars in a faster time frame than than our initial uh, target. And so everything we're doing is with a view of having a double digit share of that $146 billion market by the end of the decade. So, so yeah, so we want to get to a billion dollars faster, but it's not going to be this year. We're buying all these companies, but it's not going to add to our guidance this year. Um, uh, uh, people who see a glass half empty might say that's bullish. I see it as a company that is that is uh, spending their stock and their cash to try to acquire their way out of a hole. Um, we'll see how they do. Um, I wish them a lot of luck, but uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm doubting, as I always am, I'm doubting whether they're going to achieve that. All right, up next, we're going to talk to our friend A.B. Mendez about Cullen Frost Bankers, a very interesting story about how a growing Texas bank dealt with the pandemic and PPP. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA. ERA's event access and monitoring intelligence platform improves earnings season and the investor events in between. Through comprehensive calendar tracking, one-click event access, dynamic monitors, multicasting, and more. Powered by an advanced language processing engine, which consumes 40,000-plus investor events annually across 10,000-plus global equities. Learn more at ERA.com. That's A-I-E-R-A.com. And remember to join the Drill Down on Twitter and Instagram at DrillDownPod. 
link up with the Business Podcast Network on LinkedIn, and let us know what stocks we should be drilling down on. Okay, our guest is A.B. Mendez of Cullen Frost Bankers. We're drilling down on Cullen Frost Bankers, his very company that he represents there. Uh, and A.B., uh, glad to have you as always. Where are you? You're in Texas? Glad to be here. Uh, deep in the heart of Texas, as we say. I'm a couple of miles from the Alamo here in uh, San Antonio, Texas. They do say deep in the heart of Texas. They sing it too, but please don't. Please don't. Well, I, so, I, I was prepared if you were going to ask, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> be, uh, we'll never know what we're missing. Um, talk to me about Cullen Frost Banks. What what is the uh, what is the focus of the business of Cullen Frost? Uh, primarily known as a commercial bank, and I think we would say what differentiates us is is lending to uh, you know bread and butter commercial and industrial customers. So it's easy for us to do commercial real estate loans. We can. We could do multifamily new developments uh, all day long if we wanted to, so we have to turn a lot of those away. But, but just banking, um, you know, call it uh, anywhere from one million to one hundred million dollars a year, mostly private companies in revenue of just industrial businesses of, of all industries, all all shapes and sizes, but mainly kind of small mid market um, companies that you know Chase and Wells Fargo don't really care about. Even the the super regionals like PNC and Comerica. Uh, don't really give the the quality of care and and kind of customer experience that that we can. So really uh, known for commercial lending. We also have a great uh, retail banking presence. I mean, I I have my personal banking with Frost. We One of the few regionals of our size that built all the infrastructure for the mobile app, the mobile banking apps, and and, uh, all the digital tools ourselves. We didn't outsource that. Oh, really? That's interesting. Because just about every bank, uh, I shouldn't say that, Some, some of the big banks do their own, but most every other smaller bank kind of signs up for a white label uh, a solution where they, you know, put their own name on it. But whether you're banking at, I'll just throw something, First Republic or you're banking at, you know, Joe Schmo's bank, you're probably using the same software underneath. That's right. Yeah. So I think back in the, the late 90s, we kind of invested quite a bit to build that uh, first party, build it ourselves. And it's improved ever since then. We have really good uh, you know, kind of uh, star ratings in the Apple and Android, uh, you know, um, app stores and, and continue to, to punch above our weight and compete really effectively with the Chase and B of A's on, on mobile and just across the board digital solutions. Where is the growth then? Sort of where are the initiatives that, that you see as a chance to grow what this bank has been? The bank's been around since 1977. Um, and, you know, you've you've avoided, you know, banks in Texas are infamous for the blowups over time. And you've avoided that certainly through booms and busts. Uh, I'm not sure which one right now. It looks to be a boom. But what what are you looking at in terms of where the bank's going to grow and where your focus is going to be? Well, well first of all, we're, we're blessed to just be in these these, you know, fantastic growth markets. I think when we see other banks that expanded to new market areas that they're not already you know, operating in, um, Dallas, Fort Worth, Houston, Austin, my God, the, the growth in Austin is just astronomical. And you see a lot of that, Corey, from uh, you know, kind of the overflow, I'd call it, from the Silicon Valley and Seattle. Everybody leaving Northern yeah. California and heading the, to Austin, yeah. The exodus, heading for the hill country in, in Texas, apparently. But so, so just the the, the influ- demographic uh, kind of the the population uh, growth is is great. Um, you know, median household income growth has been great as as there's been a lot of corporate headquarters relocations, especially to the Dallas Fort Worth Metroplex in Austin, and, and to a lesser extent Houston and San Antonio also. So, so just the the macro growth is great. We're in we're in the right markets. Um, and then and you know, San Antonio the, and Corpus Christi, right? All, uh, all, all of the above. Too. That's right. All all the major metro areas in Texas we, we operate in. 
And then above and beyond that, you know, we in San Antonio, 153 year old bank holding corporation, we got 20% of the market in San Antonio. In Austin, maybe 8%. So, so really strong market share. But, but these massive, uh, you know, MSAs, Houston and Dallas Fort Worth, that's more than half a trillion dollars of deposits, where we are on average maybe 2% penetrated. We announced in uh, March of 2018 that we'd be uh, opening. You, you might think that the branch is dead, but, but to, even for a, especially for a commercial bank, it's important to those small customers to see that we have a physical presence in their market so that if a customer needs to go in and, and, and deal with an issue, one of, sorry, if one of their employees needs to walk into a branch or if the CEO wants to meet with his banker, you know, they can do that. So we added 25 branches in Houston over the last two and a half years. And we just announced last month that we'll be doing the same thing in Dallas, uh, 25 new physical locations. Uh, to roughly That was going to be my drill down there. bite at the end of the show. The 25 branches you open. You just ruined oh. it, A.B. Oh, sorry to, to blow right, so, the, the, so the great me, could be me singing deep in the heart of Texas. We'll, we'll, right we, we'll save it. Please continue <laughs> to listen to the podcast. And we'll keep that from happening. Um, A.B., I want to push back on that. Uh, it is baloney that people want to go into a branch of a bank. I was at a financial conference about two years ago, and one of the banks that was there presented some, some data. They said that they had asked their customers which they would prefer, going into the dentist or going to a branch at the bank? And the answer was the dentist, that the, the desire of millennials in particular to go into a branch of a bank was so bad. And you see this with the sort of redesign that some banks have put into their branches where they're putting in baristas and coffee shops and so on. Um, I, I, it doesn't seem to me that opening a lot of branches is a, is a 2021 way to grow your bank. Prove me them wrong. Uh, you know, d don't disagree with you. And, and I think, you know, in the past, I myself have kind of fallen into the, the trap of like thinking about the whole business from the, the retail consumer standpoint. You know, millennials will never go to a branch and, and good for them, honestly. Um, but we've, we've surveyed a lot of, of the commercial businesses that we're mainly focused on. The majority of our, our revenues come from, uh, you know, commercial business. I'd say 90 percent of the loans are to, 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 to you know, businesses, not individuals. And for those small and mid-market commercial uh, customers, when, when they put out an RFP, um, a significant majority of them, uh, one of the items on their list for their RFP is, do you have a physical location within 20 miles of my headquarters? And that, you know, 20 years from now, that may drop off of the list. They, they may no longer care. But for certain kinds of transactions, uh, you know, financing, you know, 20, 50, $100 million deals, they do want to meet with their banker, whether it's at their office or our office, and and just putting that, planting that flag in their re, you know regional area shows them a commitment to their community. And we're serving our communities in many different ways, and some of this community community service above and beyond banking. So so to the businesses that we bank, it matters a lot more than to the individuals. Interesting. All right. So well, let me back up a little bit and talk about what the effect of of the pandemic has been on businesses, and talk about maybe even generally kind of educate our listeners into how the Paycheck Protection Program loans, um, I think, really benefited a lot of banks, particularly uh, uh, small and regional banks. Uh, to, uh, what did that do to your business in the last, uh, call it, uh, I don't know, 15 months? Well, first off, it, it added about 20% to the, the total loan book. I think we were in the top 10, if not the top five in the nation in terms of the total volume of PPP loans that we added relative to the size of our pre-existing loan book. And part of that is uh, robotic process automation that we put in place to process these incredibly cumbersome SBA uh, loan applications. 
And part of it is just our, our corporate culture, our people going above and beyond to, to help their customers to get these applications done. So it, it greatly increased the size of the loans for, well, for our existing book of customers. I'd say in the first round, it was almost only existing customers that we, we let in the door with a PPP loan. In this more recent round, or in this year to date, maybe 20, 25% of the PPP loans we've processed have been new customers that, you know, they tried to get a loan with their, their large bank or some other bank and, and it didn't work out. And then they came to us and we tried to make it easy for them. But uh, it's, it's expanded the size of our loan book. And that's more recently, it's helped us to bring in some new uh, customers through word of mouth when they had trouble getting it elsewhere. I would think the flavor of those loans is different. Uh, I mean, it, it certainly brings obviously a lot of capital through the bank, but it also, um, uh, you know, those loans are going to get paid back or forgiven probably, right? So the the overall risk to the bank is lessened because if you said, if you added, you know, 20% to your loan book and then that was that was basically guaranteed money, it's a different risk profile than the bank had, you know, just beforehand. Absolutely. And you point at a really interesting issue about this. It's kind of a double-edged sword where, on, on the one hand, it kind of they, the, if you could get a traditional loan next month or you could go get this PPP loan, which, you know, odds are is just going to be forgiven by the SBA, forgiven by the government. It goes from a loan to being sort of a grant or free money. Uh, which would you take? So I think a lot of these PPP loans have cannibalized traditional loan growth for us over this period, which is not surprising. Um, you know, but but on the other hand, it's allowed us to allowed us to engender goodwill with our customers by making this very cumbersome process easier and generating a substantial amount of, of fee income just just based on the, the origination fees for those loans. So it, it's been a boon to some of our customers, probably hopefully helped some of our customers to stay in business. And it's been it's been a good fee generator, but more importantly, generating goodwill you know for the customers that really needed those loans. Has it been kind of true across the industry? You suggested that your bank was among the top five in growing the loan book with PPP loans. Um, is that kind of across the industry that has they've had that sort of effect of steadying the banking system? You know, I think the, the participation in PPP and success with PPP has been very different from one institution to the next. Um, there, there are there are some who who had you know very little participation, maybe intentionally and. And others who who were you know kind of in the in the, the top tier with us. I, again, I think the ones that were most successful um, are those that. Well, first off, you know many of these go to small businesses, so we have a lot of a lot of small business customers that are getting you know call it two hundred fifty thousand dollar and less loans. So so I think what made us unique was um, having a book of, of customers where there was going to be a lot of need for PPP loans, but also having the technology to process many of these applications very quickly. And having again a corporate culture of service where the people within our company uh, knew that in some cases their customers' uh, livelihood was on the line, and if it didn't work out, that you know their business might not survive. So we had um, you know hundreds and hundreds of people out of a company of 4,000 uh, that just volunteered to work you know longer hours to help with the, with the manual part of the process of getting these these loans processed. And, and, volunteered? And, yeah. Until, you don't pay these until, people. Oh, they, they got paid, but they volunteered to, okay. to work overtime right. Just and, and, and to kind of come off of their normal duties, which would sort of pile up while they're working on the PPP stuff and kind of work odd hours to, to just, you know, chip in to help the effort. Well, and, and I, I say that not just jokingly, but what did that do to costs at the same time that you're opening up new branches, increasing the kind of underlying cost of running your bank? Well, it's interesting. There were some additional costs associated with PPP uh, loan originations, but... 
given that you know we're going to recognize both the income and the expenses associated with those loans over a 12 to 24 month period, whatever our, our updated best guess of the life of the loan book is, um, those costs will get spread over kind of over the next year, so to speak. Well, yeah, to that point, those loans are probably not going to be around as long as some of the other loans your bank might have made on a commercial basis. Do you, do you start to look at that as a, as a lead generation prospect to sort of say, hey, you're going to have to pay that one back, but we can back it up with a real loan uh, that you, you might exist on, your, on our books for longer and on your books for longer and get a deeper relationship with that customer? Exactly right. So, so out of the 15,000 or so loans that we processed, you know, roughly about 15% of those were customers that are new to the bank. So, so we kind of hope and trust that those customers, when, when they're through with that PPP experience, that they now have a deposit account with us. And hopefully they'll, they'll look for the next round of financing with us and do, you know, kind of grow the, the business over time. Um, I think both the combination of bringing in, a, a, you know, thousands of new customers through this PPP process um, many of them having had a poor experience with their previous bank on getting a PPP loan and building all these new new locations and, and spending a lot on marketing in the Houston and, and Dallas-Fort Worth areas. Um, while we're going through this, you know, trough and now boom and reopening in, in kind of the, the core business, all those things come together to really increase the, the, our, our forward-looking organic growth profile or the, or the prospects for growth. It's kind of the feedstock to, you know, 12 to 24-month uh, out. Well, let, let's say forget about 2021 when we look out to 2022 to 2025 time frame the things that we've done with ppp and expanding our presence in the houston and dallas markets should should be very accretive growth i would think so yeah. all right so you had to call it 2200 new customers in this process does do you really use i mean you talk about your use of technology will you use that like pump that into a crm software and say we've got these two 2500 leads let's divide them up by our bankers let's contact them all let's make sure we've got relationships going and really try to bring them in is that sort of the way that your bank at Cullen Frost is using uh, technology absolutely uh, we actually um, have have invested a lot in technology while we did a lot you mentioned expenses we, we had the first um, headcount reduction in about 20 years at the end of last year beginning of this year so we that was the last thing we did on a long list of things we did to cut expenses and kind of adjust to the, the current reality of kind of zero interest rates on the Fed funds rate. But, but um, you know, to your point, we've hired a, C, a new CIO who was uh, a very well-regarded, um, you know, executive with Schwab before she came over to, to our company. And, and, and everything I've heard thus far is that, you know, she has a great vision, kind of a strategic medium and longer term vision for our technology infrastructure and architecture that will allow us to get a lot more out of the, the, the large amounts of customer data that we have already and that we continue to feed in through this PPV process. So, yes, using that data to customize the experience that the customer gets and, and you know, kind of offer them the right product or, or service at the right time, both to make their life easier, but hopefully also to, uh, again, to, to nudge up that growth trajectory over time. So how did uh, hotels and restaurants do for you, for the bank? To your customers at the bank during the last year when those businesses just got virtually shut down? Well, it, it, they've been very challenged. I'll say that, you know, the, the hotels are, are a small percentage of our overall loans, uh, maybe maybe 2%. I, I should pull it up. But um, we do have very solid sponsorship of, of the hotel loans that we have. So, um, just just very liquid uh, customers and investors that have other sources of liquidity. Um, 
relatively low loan to values on those loans. And they're all uh, kind of premier flag hotels, you know, I guess the, the Marriott's and the Hilton's or, or kind of those, those alternative brands of those, those companies. So, so they're, they're relatively low risk within hotels, but yeah, hotels are a bad neighborhood right now. It's, um, you know, thus far, knock on wood, those, most of those loans are, are still performing. And restaurants? Uh, likewise, I think restaurants, I, I, maybe half of our loans there are, are to kind of the, the um, you know, quick service or fast casual, the, the, the kind of restaurant that has done uh, a lot better at adjusting and to, to delivery and, and kind of buy online pickup uh, at curbside. So, um, and, and they're also very granular. I mean, there's, there's a, a lot of very small mom and pop restaurants in there. Some of those, uh, you know, may not, you know, kind of make it through the pandemic, but, but again, so, so, so yes, there's risk and we've, we've taken very conservative marks and, and we took a massive provision uh, in the first quarter of last year. Uh, we took a zero provision last quarter just to kind of to say, right. you know, to, to indicate to the market that we've, we've taken most of the pain on those you know, kind of COVID exposed segments. And I, you know, I, I can't get, let you get out of here without talking to a Texas banker about the oil and gas business. I mean, that has that has traditionally been the uh, the time bomb for for banks. You know, I've I'm, I've I've probably read up way too much in the history of SNLs in Texas and in in the, you know the 1980s and so on. Some of, some of my favorite one of my favorite books actually about business, uh, Funny Money by Mark mm-hmm. Singer. I don't know if you know this book, but it's a spectacular book about the Penn National Bank uh, and its failure in Oklahoma. But it, it does talk a lot about kind of the, the risks of lending to oil and gas. You guys have the highest concentration of all of your loans in oil and gas. What have you seen there and what do you see there going forward? Well, we've managed it very closely over the last couple of years. Since our, our current CEO and CFO came into their positions about five, six years ago, um, you know, we've we've managed the energy book down from, you know, call it 12 to 15 percent. The peak was in 2016. And it was 16 percent of loans. Most recently, seven and a half percent of of uh, of total loans ex PPP. So it's it's down almost 10 percentage points down about, you know, about um, half a billion from the peak. And it's kind of approaching a, a one billion dollar level where we'd be more comfortable, I think. At some point, we'll get it down to the mid-single digits. The next highest concentration after energy is public finance, and that's about 5% of the total. So if we could get energy down to that level, I think we'd be more comfortable. Um, we, and that we, is the goal. So reducing the energy as a percentage of loans outstanding is a goal of a Texas bank. You don't hear that often, unless they're in well, trouble. Well, I think we have great customers in, in the oil patch. But with, with that said, um, at some point you know, in the past, when, when I joined Frost, it was you know 2014, and in 2015, there's some oil volatility. And if you look at the stock, I mean, it, it, the correlation was just insane. It looked like we were a crude ETF, the way that the stock would trade at that time. Right. And we always say, you know, we don't really think that our investors sign up for that kind of volatility. And so we, we're happy to do business with customers in the oil patch, but we don't want CFR to trade like DUG, basically. So, so I think just to, to get it down to a level where it's it's in line with our other higher concentration you know parts of the loan book um, and where that that risk is is more manageable than the volatility or the correlation with with the commodity is you know is lower basically where we're, we and our investors are more comfortable that's that's kind of the goal ab mendez colin frost bankers thank you very much how can our listeners uh, stay in touch with uh, colin frost and you as well on the socials well, uh, I, I should have the Frost Bank Twitter handle handy. I believe it's just Frost Bank, but you can Google Frost Bank, uh, you know, for, for Twitter as well as uh, the other socials. And, and I'm at 
A.B. Mendez on Twitter and, of course, uh, like the rest of us, all over, all over LinkedIn. But thank you, Corey. It's always a pleasure talking with you. Absolutely. And we will also uh, tweet out uh, with that information on our at Drill Down Pod account. Well, we still do have a drill down bite. He didn't completely ruin it. I still got more data about uh, uh, how, uh, about Colin Frost. Let's get you a number about the percentage of increase in PPP loans the oil and gas business gave Colin Frost. So they, as, as A.B. mentioned, they had about 7.1% of their customers in oil and gas. How much did that increase during PPP? We'll tell you about that increase when the drill down continues. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA, the equity platform with event intelligence and insights for fundamental investors. Seamlessly connect to any earnings call and take advantage of ERA's AI-powered tools. Work faster and smarter with ERA.com. That's A-I-E-R-A.com. And please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeart, TuneIn, Podbean, you name it. But hit that subscribe button and follow us to catch every show. And remember to join the Drill Down on Twitter and Instagram at Drill Down Pod. Link up with us on LinkedIn and check out our website, bizpod.net. All right, Colin Frost Bank, uh, despite the pandemic, has a very big oil and gas business, but it got bigger during the pandemic with PPP loans. It went from 7.1% to 8.2%, which is to say a 16% increase in oil and gas lending during the pandemic, perhaps that will indeed be a place for uh, Cullen Frost to chase after new business, Isaac. I love that. I can see them on the chase right now. All right. Well, you've been listening to The Drill Down. We do appreciate your time. Subscribe to us, as we say, on all the major platforms. I'm Corey Johnson. He's Isaac Webster. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.